Jesus, uh, I just ask that uh, by your Holy Spirit you do a whole bunch of stuff in all of our hearts, the preacher's heart included, uh, and that you would help us to centre more upon you. So I pray that you come out of this uh, message this morning as the most important person in the universe, the most important person anywhere. So Lord, I just pray that you would exalt yourself today. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> See this table over here? I made this table, right? Um, I actually used to be the manual arts teacher at the school here. And uh, the red bits of timber are Jarrah, which is uh, a eucalypt from the south, uh, southwest of Western Australia. And the uh, lighter colours there are actually silky oak. Uh, interestingly, it's actually silky oak from one of our next door neighbours um, in Sydney, when we lived in Sydney. And uh, I've actually made, if you walk into our house, I've actually made just about all of the timber furniture that's in our house. I absolutely love making stuff and love creating stuff and love designing things. And this got me thinking. I got thinking about this message this morning in the context of me making things and I thought, I wonder what the relationship is between a, crea a creation and its creator. That's interesting, isn't it? Think about that. And I came up with three things. The creator and the owner actually determines what it looks like. I determined that. When I made this table, it's a classic Sondergeld, right? Let's make it with leftover timber so we can make it the cheapest that we possibly can, all right? Use up the bits and pieces. I determine the design of it. And my thoughts and my thinking and my creativity is actually central to that table. Now, it actually wouldn't matter if this table was an animate object and it said, ah, stuff you, I'm not going to... I'm not going to take that. It doesn't matter. It wouldn't actually matter what the table thought. I designed it. I created it. I'm actually central to what the design of that table is. The second bit I thought uh, was really critical is actually purpose. This item could actually strive to do something else, but if it has been designed properly, it will never be more fully who it is than when it lives out the purpose for which it, it was created. This is true of this table. If I say this is a table... It wouldn't matter what this table thought if it had a brain and it had consciousness. It wouldn't matter what it thought about what its purpose was. It's actually me that determines the purpose of this table. And it can't get away from that. It is locked in. I determine the purpose of it. And I was talking to Diff about this the other day and he actually said this is the case when it comes to authors and, and uh, writing novels and that sort of stuff. While the author lives, the author always determines the meaning of what they write. But he said to me the other day, as soon as the author dies, guess what happens? Other people start to come up with different interpretations and it starts to splinter. But while the author's alive, they determine what it is. And the last one up there is, I actually determine how long this table exists for. If I don't want it to exist anymore, I have the right to burn it, put it in my fire across the road. The creator is central. And you know what? God created us. So, you know, whether you live, whether you live with a consciousness of God's centrality or not, He is central to you. You can crash up against Him and decide that you're actually not going to fulfill the purpose that He's designed you for, but you will never ever be more fully alive than when you actually fulfill the purpose for which He's designed for you. He can decide when people live and die because He made it and He owns it. And so you don't get cranky with Him when He decides that someone's, it's someone's time not to be alive anymore because it's his creation and he owns it. He is central. So what I wanted to throw out really quick, and this is a tiny little bit, bit of apologetics, all right? I want to 
to give you three reasons why the evolutionary project which wants to sideline God out of creation is ridiculous. Okay? This is why we can believe that we actually have a creating God. The universe is actually fine-tuned for life. Listen to this. Take gravity, for example. Imagine a linear radio dial that spans the universe. It is broken down into one-inch increments, resulting in billions upon billions of inches, each representing a possible setting for the force of gravity. This is absolutely true scientifically. If you were to move the setting only one inch, the force of gravity would increase by a billion fold. All living creatures would be crushed in an instant. The world just didn't get here by accident, did it? If you have that one increment change in gravity, we all just get turned into a smear on the pavement. That doesn't come by chance. That's fine-tuned. Let me tell you something else. There's been some discussion among scientists that uh, the sun and, and the planets and all that sort of stuff, the fact that it's all fine-tuned and the right kind of settings for life, that could just kind of happen anywhere. You could have a sun somewhere else that could create conditions for life. Well, listen to this. It would take a star with the highly unusual properties of our sun, the right mass, the right light, the right composition, the right distance, the right orbit, the right galaxy, the right location to nurture living organisms on a circling planet. That makes our sun and our planet rare indeed. The sun is the perfect planet that's required the right distance away for a circling planet to actually have life. And there's a lot of people out there who want to say, eh, it just kind of happened like that. You just got it. Just a whole bunch of things. Just, I told my boys one day, I said, just go out and shove a whole bunch of stuff in a bucket and just keep shaking it around and see what you get. All right? And what you're going to get is dirt. But people want to, want to say to you that the fact that we've got the exact right sign, it's just a chance thing. I don't think it's a chance thing. One more piece of uh, evidence. I should introduce this guy. Some of you may or may not have heard of Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew has been the most prolific academic atheist for probably the last 30 or 40 years. And uh, about five, six years ago, roughly, he changed his mind. And, he, and he's not an atheist anymore. Now, he's not a Christian, but he actually believes that there's something, someone who's intelligent, that's powerful, who's actually created everything. He says the evidence is actually overwhelming and he had to change his mind. Now this hit the papers. This is in the Australian paper. This is on websites. So you've got all these atheist organisations that like having Anthony Flew's head on their websites and all of a sudden he's not on their team anymore. All right, it's pretty frustrating. It gets you pretty angry. But check this out. This is what Anthony Flew says in his book uh, where he talks about his uh, changing of his mind. What I think the DNA material has done so he, he changed because of the new research into DNA, is that it has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. He's saying DNA is so detailed and so critical to life and so well structured that it just didn't happen by chance. It has to be someone who's intelligent who's actually done that. It's the enormous capacity sorry, complexity of the number of elements and the enormous subtlety of the ways they work together. The meeting of these two parts at the right time by chance is simply minute. He says, don't think it happened by chance. 
Someone intelligent did this. It is all a matter of the enormous complexity by which the results were achieved, which looked to me like the work of intelligence. Absolutely. And the last one I'll throw in for you, which I reckon is classic, is uh, Richard Dawkins. I don't know how many of you... Has anyone heard of Richard Dawkins? A few people? You should watch this clip. You can get it on YouTube, but I've actually watched the whole doco. Uh, on a, on a uh, documentary called No Intelligence Allowed, I kid you not, at the end of it, Richard Dawkins gets asked by the interviewer. The interviewer is saying... How did the earth get here? And he goes, we got here by evolution. It was just an accident. Everything kind of bashed into each other and we just ended up with all the stuff that we got. And he goes, yeah, 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 but how did we get it? And he goes, well, there was a first molecule that replicated and then everything else kind of happened. He goes, yeah, 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 but how did we get the first molecule? I kid you not. He said, we don't know. He said, but it, it could have happened by aliens coming. True, true. You can watch it. Seriously, if you type in Richard Dawkins and aliens into YouTube, you'll find it. He said it could have happened by aliens who were evolved coming to our planet and seeding life. Bet you haven't heard him say that one before. That's what he said. And there's some scientists out there starting to say that. Now you tell me, what's easy to believe? Evolved aliens coming to Earth and seeding evolution into our planet or God just creating the thing? I reckon God's easier. That's why people have written books. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist because it actually is a faith step to not believe in God. All right, let's get going. The Creator is central. Here's a uh, scripture for you from uh, Revelation 4.11. These are the 24 elders worshipping God. It says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This verse is saying... If someone asks a question, why should God get all the glory? Because he created everything. This verse specifically is saying that the only reason needed for God to get all worship from every single human being in the world and all glory from every being, creature, creation is because he created it. Like the table, he is central. Except he's a way better creator than me because I need wood to make a table and he can just make it out of nothing. All right, so I want to talk about this whole concept of uh, glory today and how God deserves glory. Anyone go for the Perth glory? Because this is interesting, I was thinking about it, I thought, man, glory may be like a religious term that people don't think about much. No, they do think about it, right? We've got a whole A-League team called the Perth glory. Check this out. Queenslanders will love that one. Yeah, origin glory. Or shame, a bit of Terry Hill and Gordon Tallis, they're not having a kiss. Right. They just want to bash each other's kisser in. That's what they want to do. Origin glory. And you know, uh, one of the, I uh, wonder if any of you can guess actually, one of the uh, empires that was most focused on glory, anyone know which one it was? Rome. Who said that? Cool, yeah, it was Rome. Alright. The Romans were all about that. Which is interesting because if you look in the New Testament at what Paul writes in the New Testament, he talks about glory a lot because wh where is he? He's right in the middle of the Roman Empire. They think they had glory and he invites them to go to a different place to get a different glory, a better glory. So glory is quite central. But what is glory? This is interesting. Uh, I think it's one of those questions where you can, uh, you can talk a lot about glory. Yeah, let's glorify God. And if you went to people and you go, well, what is it? Just be... <laughs> I don't know. What is it? 
So I thought, let's go to the Oxford Dictionary. It's always a good place to start. Check this out. Oxford Dictionary says that glory is high renown or honour won by notable achievements. Magnificence, great beauty, a very beautiful or impressive thing. Now, surely the first one up there, high renown or honour won by notable achievements. Are there any Queenslanders here that would say that would be Darren Lockyer? Yeah, because didn't he get glory? People gave him glory on the last State of Origin game. They just did. Because they thought, man, you have done some notable things. You have, done, have, have made Queensland achieve some great things. So let's go to the Bible. What does the Bible mean when it talks about glory? Biblically, glory is abundance, wealth, treasure, honour, dignity, splendour, brightness, majesty, infinite perfections of God, honour, praise and worship. But you know what? If you go to the Old Testament, the strict translation of the word glory actually means the last one there, which is weight. So what I want to do, I'll just use this uh, illustration here. So imagine this is a rock. If I put a rock, if I, if I dropped a rock into a flowing creek, just a creek, what happens to the water? Does, uh, if it's just a gentle flowing creek, what happens to the water once I've dropped that rock in? It has to go around. It has to go around it. Why does it have to go around it? The reason why it has to go around it is because the weight of the rock is greater than the weight of the water. Agreed? The glory of the rock is greater than the glory of the water. So the water must go around it. Alternatively, if I got a, a tiny rock that was like maybe one-tenth the size of this and I put it on the ground and dropped a big rock on top, what would likely happen? It would squash it. It would crush it and disintegrate it. Why does it crush it and disintegrate it? It's because the glory of this rock is greater than the glory of the one on the floor because it's heavier. It carries more weight. So when you think about glory and when you think about God, you need to think, that, that's one way that you can think about it. You can think about he is weighty. It's like, it's like you just go, oh man, that's, that guy's a heavy guy. Like I'm going to be careful around that guy. It's like, man, that, that's a really weighty, important person. What does it do? The weighty important person always restructures the way that I think about myself and the way that I act. And this is exactly what God's glory is like. The weightiness of him restructures the way or ought to restructure the way that you think about yourself and the way that you act. Keep trucking. This can be a really jarring truth. You know those Warner Brothers cartoons where they walk along and there's a couple of nails that have come out the end of the plank and they stand on the end of it and it comes up and hits them in the face and that kind of thing. Or the people that walk around their backyard and they just, you know, there's the rake standing there and the pointy bits are sticking up and, they're just, and you're all sitting there and you're just going, he's walking on it, doesn't matter, it could be five acres out the back, he's just going to walk on that rake and he steps on it and it just hits him in the face. This is a bit what the glory of God is about. And you'll see why in a sec. See, righteousness is when you value the most valuable thing the most highly. Agreed? You value things in accord with how valuable they are. That's what righteousness is. So when you go out in society and you see someone trashing something, the reason why, one of the reasons why it gets you upset is because you look and you just go, that thing is way more valuable than the way that that person's treating it. 
And that's why if you're a Christian and you go out and you hear people blaspheming and using God's name in vain and just giving rubbish to the whole concept of God, that's why Christians, in a sense, can get a little bit upset on the inside because that God's a very valuable person to you. And someone is doing something that doesn't match the value of the person. Check this out. God's glory is the most important thing in the world for everyone, including God. You know the jarring truth is because God's creator and because he is central in the world, you will glorify him. You will. Willingly or unwillingly. You will glorify him. It will just happen. I'm going to give you some scriptures because some of you might be thinking, oh man, I think there was a nail in the end of that board and it got me in the nose. Here's some scriptures. These will be dead set jarring scriptures for you because they're jarring for me. And you know why they're jarring? It's because we live in an intensely selfish culture. I saw a book the other day written by a guy about the... uh, about total secular therapies with psychologists and and psychiatrists and he actually says that he thinks that total secular psychology and psychiatry is the development of a self-worship cult. That's what he said. And he actually says that for the last, basically for the last hundred years, as far as I can tell, um, people have been focusing more and more on themselves and whether they're okay. And and the quote that I, I read that just really stuck with me is he said, people are always saying, asking each other, how do you feel about that? And no one's asking the question, how does God feel about it? Because God actually is central to things. And he actually says the whole project is about worshipping yourself and getting focused on yourself. And this is an antidote to it, albeit a very harsh one. So the question here is this, why were you created? Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I'll say to the north, give up, and to the south, don't withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my what? For my glory. The purpose of your existence is to glorify God. The purpose of your existence is to show God's incredible value and treasure and transcendence. That's why you are made. Next one's this. Why did God rescue Israel at the Red Sea? All of us would know this story. The Israelites get taken out of Egypt. They get stuck at the Red Sea. God parts the waters. Why do you reckon God actually did that? Now, a lot of us in a cult of self-worship, and I think the church has actually taken on a whole bunch of that cult of self-worship, would say, oh, I did it because he loves them, because they're the most important thing to him. Well, it is true that he loves them, but it isn't true that the people of Israel are the ultimate, most important thing to God. And here's a scripture to prove it. Psalm 106, 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God's reputation, like all of ours, is attached to our name. People hear your name and they come up with an idea in in their head about what you're like as a person. When people hear the name of God, they come up with an idea about what he's like. And he's saying here, through the psalmist, that the reason why he saved Israel at the Red Sea is because when people hear his name, he wants them to know that he is a really good, valuable God who can perform amazing feats. That's why he did it. That's the ultimate reason why he did it. 
Here's another one. Why did God spare rebellious Israel? So Israel go in, they have a kingdom, they, uh, they've got a whole bunch of really dodgy kings. All right, if you think, I mean, it's probably one of the best evidences that the Old Testament's written by God because most of the people leading that place are just shonky ass. One dude gets a guy drunk, sleeps with his wife, and then gets him killed, right? Which is pretty good. And he's a guy that God says is named after his own heart. It's got a heart like his, and you're kind of going, excellent. So we'll all go out and get people drunk and sleep with people and then kill them. But this is what God does. God takes people that are really broken and calls them into himself, and we'll look at that a little bit later. Why did God spare rebellious Israel even when they repetitively rebelled against him? Didn't do what he asked him to do. Isaiah 48, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now later on, we're going to get to a section where we just look at the fact that all of us There's not one person in this room that isn't a glory thief sometimes and wants to steal glory from God. You better have some respect toward him because he's just said in Isaiah 48 there, I'm not going to give you any. I'm not giving you any of my glory. So we're idiots, basically, is what it comes down to at the end. We'll get to that a bit more later. Some of you might be saying, yeah, but God, like, we're like the most important thing in God's eyes. And that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus shows us on the cross that what's most important to God is actually people. Well, this is a troubling scripture. Why did Jesus become a servant? Romans 15:8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. God intends to get glory out of it. That's what he intends. And in some ways, I think that we've actually been infected by, uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of the philosopher uh, Kant. Kant was a guy that um, suggested that uh, love is not genuine unless there's nothing in it for the lover. And I actually think our society is pretty well infected with that kind of idea. We actually think that if God actually gets glory out of loving us, it's not true love. Let me give you uh, a quick example. On the holidays, I uh, thought it'd be a really cool thing to cook my wife a nice meal. All right? Some of you are just going to go, oh, I thought the guy's a bit tougher than this. He's a bit soft. He's a bit of a romantic sometimes. And that that may be true, right? But I thought this would be cool. We've got four kids. Youngest is two. The oldest is seven. Yeah, I almost didn't get that. Oldest is seven, right? And I thought, we don't get to go out to the restaurant that often. So we're just going to buy lots and lots of nice food. So we paid 10 bucks for a litre of ice cream and I'm just going to cook a, an amazing dinner for her, right? So I cook this nice dinner. Now, the next bit I'm making up. Let's say we get to the end of the dinner and my wife says to me, she says, Pete, I just really, I really appreciate that you've done this tonight, all right? And she says to me, Pete, tell me, just why'd you do it? Would it be love if I said this to her? Say, honey, I've been to the courses. I didn't enjoy it at all. I just did it because that's what you're supposed to do for your wife. What would she do? Probably slap me. All right? Would I deserve it? Absolutely I'd deserve it. 
is there anything wrong with me saying this to my wife when she says, Pete, why'd you do it? And I, said, and I say this to her, I say, Ange, there is nothing that makes me happier than just cooking some stuff for you, blessing you and just spending time with you. That, that just makes me so happy to do that. Would she slap me across the face and say, you selfish pig? <laughs> Would she? No, she wouldn't. But yet, this is where Ken, I think, has got it wrong. In fact, you look at any romantic love and there's always something in it for the lover. The thing is that God's able to get glory for himself and to love you exactly the way you need to be loved at the same time. Here's another one. Why did Jesus die? This is the last, last scripture in this section here. Why did Jesus die? Check this scripture out. Romans 3. This is one that doesn't get preached too often in churches, I don't reckon. Um, Christ Jesus God put forward as a wrath remover, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Let me explain this. Remember I said to you before that this guy who was called after God's own heart, David, got a guy drunk, slept with his wife and then got him killed. God forgave him. If we had a judge in Toowoomba where someone got someone drunk, slept with their wife and then had him killed and they went into the courtroom and the judge said, that's okay, I'm going to let you go free. Would, it be a good, would they be a good judge? Would they be a good judge? They wouldn't, would they? But yet this is what God did. This is what God did in the Old Testament. So God's left himself open to the accusation, you are a bad judge. You are a bad person because you let this guy off. And you'd imagine, I mean, if you were one of, it was Uriah, the guy that he got knocked off, he did it in a kind of a tricky way so that no one would know, but of course God doesn't ever get tricked by us. But, so he gets his thing done in a, in a, imagine if you were part of Uriah's family, you would be screaming foul, wouldn't you? Just be going, you, hey, what? You're letting him off. You're an idiot. You are unfair. You are unrighteous. You are a bad, bad judge. And there's a sense in which God's graciousness toward people who have done bad things in the Old Testament made him look bad. So Romans 3 says, well, God says in Romans 3, says, I'm going to settle this. I'm going to fix this up because you need to know that I'm not like that. So I'm going to send my son and he's going to take all the punishment so that a fair punishment is given for the crime. David never got it. Jesus got it in his place. So, we are stupid thieves. Only an idiot picks a fight with someone stronger, th- stronger than them, don't they? Only an idiot would try to steal something from someone who doesn't want to give it to you and who knows everything and is all-powerful and can stop you whenever he wants. Agreed? But isn't that us? I read this story about, because uh, don't you hear them on the news every now and then, these stories about these stupid crooks. Because one of them comes up every now and then and you just kind of go, what the heck were you thinking, right? This guy in Cairns, break into this place and he's, he's gone, cool, I'm going to steal the safe, right? Because that's where you put the valuable stuff in the safe and he says, yeah, I'm going to steal that and that's cool. But the problem was, the safe's attached to the filing cabinet. That's cool. I'll take the cabinet as well, right? So I kid you not, the guy, he's got a Pajero, I've seen the photo of it, he takes the filing cabinet, 
with the safe attached to it and puts it in the back of his Pajero and ties it in, right? The, the filing cabinet and the safe are just hanging out the back of the Pajero. So the cops just come along and bingo, we got him. All right? Stupid thief. Well, we're pretty stupid too. I'm pretty stupid. We're all pretty stupid sometimes. Because when people want to be autonomous, we are actually stupid thieves, aren't we? God actually never made any single person in this world to be autonomous. He made us all to be dependent upon him. So when we're not dependent upon him, you're trying to steal his glory. And we just read before in Isaiah 48, he said, he's told you, he told all of us, I'm not giving it to anyone else. So, what the heck are we all doing? (laughs) Trying to be autonomous, depend upon him. When people want to be the treasure, they are stupid thieves. I was reading in a biblical counselling book just recently, the fellow was talking about fantasies, and I'm not talking about sexual fantasies and dodgy stuff, but just fantasies. Don't you have those moments where uh, you sit down and, and, and you'll be watching something on TV and you just think, I wish I could be a better dancer than them and then everyone would do you know what I'm saying or, or you sit there mine was with the Dave Matthews band because I love the Dave Matthews band I'm watching them in Central Park in New York having this big concert and there's lots of people there and I'm just going to wish I was a drummer and you have these fantasies but aren't fantasies ultimately about us well a lot of the time aren't they ultimately about us wanting to take a God position and they're actually about us wanting to get glory we actually want to be the treasure Instead of God being the treasure, we actually fantasise, maybe I could be the treasure. When we want to be the treasure, we're stupid thieves. When we want to be the weight, when we want to be the heavy person that causes everyone else around us to change their mind, like the the rock in the middle of the stream where the water has to change its, its path because of the weight of that rock, when we want to be that person that wants to be the really significant one that causes people around us to change their direction and change the way that they act, we're being a glory thief. When we want to be independent, we are stupid thieves. When people are self-absorbed, you're actually being a glory thief. You're taking stuff that belongs to God. You're only caring about yourself. When people want to be self-sufficient, when they're self-sufficient, you might be sitting here and you just might be thinking, maybe sometimes you even think, man, I, I, I know how much money's in my bank account and I'm all good, thanks. See, dependence upon that is stealing God's glory. When people try to be in control and hate being controlled, they're being stupid glory thieves. See that? Human beings actually hate it when someone else stands up. And this is especially apparent in school for us. Anytime you stand up and you tell a teenager what they should be doing, it's almost like their automatic response is, I'm going to do the opposite. But Paul tells us in Romans, does he not, that's a response of everyone. It's not just a teenager thing. It's actually a response of everyone. If I stood up here and said, oh, you need to go and do this, one of your instinctive responses probably on the inside is, no, I'm just going to go and do the opposite. I didn't even want to do that until you said that. But now I'm going to go and do it. Don't we do that? Being a glory thief. We don't like to be controlled and we like to look like we're in control. When people think their perspective, insight, theory or truth is 